I'm Alex Semenzato, and this is the Simo Podcast. This episode is presented by Elo, the Creators Network. Elo is a global community of artists dedicated to creative excellence, built by artists for artists. If you're a creator and you want to create a profile and collaborate with your peers, or you just love art and creativity and you want to check out some of the incredible works from all over the world, you can now by heading to elo.co. What's up, everyone? How are you? I hope you are having an excellent day and an even better week, whatever you're up to. Welcome back to another episode. This week, we are speaking with Ivan Olita, whose character could be identified as a contemporary Bruce Chatwin. Forcing himself to only dress in black and live out of a carry-on, he sees his real home not in a house, but in the thousands of roads he walks. With one foot stateside in Los Angeles and the other in his native Italy, the filmmaker and creative director confidently moves between the worlds of cinema, art and fashion by successfully consulting for top tier brands and publications whilst pursuing his own personal research and development as a talented documentarian trained at Werner Herzog's Rogue Film School. The production company he founded, Bravo, is spread across the globe with a team of seven creatives that deliver premium doc formats for both commercial and editorial purposes. He is a Vimeo staff pick, regular, and his most recent projects have been featured on Nowness, National Geographic, The Atlantic, Director's Notes, Short of the Week, W Magazine, Aeon, Dazed, Vogue, and The New Yorker. In this episode, we speak to Yvonne all about his career to date. He's super transparent and shares some incredible insight, top tips and tricks. And it's really interesting learning about Yvonne's kind of career, how he became a filmmaker, the incredible films that he has directed and produced, and also the exciting projects he's got in the works with Bravo and his own personal feature. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Hi, Yvonne. How are you? Hey, Alex. Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. Um, Super excited to to talk with you today. I mean, I don't really know where to start. You're doing so much, um, but we're going to have a great discussion. So thanks again for your time. Um, as always, we love to start with some icebreakers. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Awesome. Favorite color? Uh, I'd say green, but you know, I'm not good with favorite stuff, but green, green, let's say it. Okay. Coffee or tea? I don't drink coffee and uh, I used to drink tea, but I think a year ago I decided to, maybe even more, to stop anything that contains caffeine in it. So I don't drink coffee nor tea. I drink herbal tea. That doesn't drink coffee. That's a world first. (laughs) I know. Suspicious. Suspicious. (laughs) Yeah. You know what they say about, you know, it's like never trust someone that doesn't eat sushi. I don't know. An Italian that doesn't drink coffee. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's it. What's your favorite item? you've purchased this year you know the truth is i don't purchase a lot of stuff um i usually buy uh 
little things. Uh, if, if I usually buy vintage jewelry, which I like, because it kind of has a um, sort of energy encapsulated within. Um, other than that, I buy pretty mundane things, which I really enjoy uh, if, if they're useful. Um, God, these questions are so difficult. Well, I bought a humidifier the other day, for example, which I think it's uh, kind of useful. Oh, you know what? I bought a Peloton, which I really love. That's good. The yeah. the the training machine. So yeah. it's kind of mundane because I don't really buy a lot of stuff that I that I just enjoy just having. I'm not a big on objects. You know what I mean? I'm I'm bigger on experiences. So maybe like if I bought something. I usually buy myself experiences. When it comes to objects, I'm, I'm kind of lame. I don't buy many things. Um, I, what I buy, I buy if I need. You know what I mean? And usually I have a setup of objects that I that I have, and sometimes I lose them, and I just replace them. This is kind of my, my setup. So I don't buy... Uh, or, you know, uh, I don't know, I bought a lemon squeezer that was very useful because I ended up using it a lot. Like this kind of stuff, you know. I, really I, remember, I, remember, when I, first, I remember when I first met you and you were telling me about your uh, the, way you, <laughs> the way you travel. And you're just like, I only wear Prada and it's black or white. <laughs> but that's true. I mean, it's, it's still like that. Now it's only black. So white is not even in the equation anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm very streamlined like that. So um you know, I, I, it's not that, I mean, I, I'm very joyful when I buy things, but for me, it, it's more of a matter of what do I need and, and then forget about it. You know, I'd rather spend money on experiences or on investing in, and you know, like doing stuff. Yeah. What's your most used emoji? Let's see on my phone. Uh, how do you do it? So good. I don't even know how to do it. Okay. Emoji. So. Where do you see them? I frequently used. Actually, it's a heart. Oh, that's nice. That's cute. Spreading love. And then I have, <laughs> yeah, I have a monkey in there. But the first one is a heart. Nice. Nice. Awesome. And lastly, a quick fun fact about you. Well, I only wear black and Prada. <laughs> <laughs> that's a quick fun fact. That is a quick fun fact. Awesome. Well, that's the end of the icebreakers. Let's get down to business. Uh, you know, thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy day. Um, you doing lots of different things. Um, but I'd like you to describe yourself and tell us what you do. Well, I'd say I'm a filmmaker mostly. Uh, and that, that means, you know, and, and I came to, to this definition after, uh, a, a lifetime of uh, many, many endeavors, but ultimately I'm a filmmaker. I own a production company and through the production company, uh, obviously we produce um, content, uh, whether it's commercial or original, or it has more uh, component of like uh, creative projects. So there is a, you know, in the filmmaking side, there is obviously a, uh, creative direction or, or simply put direction component. Um, but yeah, I would say that th this is pretty much it. I also do now have, I love traveling. So I created a guide. Um, so it, it, it's not entirely true that, you know, I, I, I would limit myself to the filmmaking. I always constantly do things, but I have to say that the more I go in life, the more I feel 
somehow, at least professionally, everything you do then has to enter, sort of be funneled into into a specific role. And in my case, that role is the one of a filmmaker, which in in itself is very uh, wide, you know, because uh, you can produce things, you can help other people produce things, you can be a mentor for other younger filmmakers, uh, you can seek mentorship for yourself. Uh, for example, now I'm in the process of venturing into longer formats, both from the documentary, which is kind of my forte, and the, and the feature and the narrative. Um, but yeah, going back to the filmmaking, it, it encompasses a lot of a lot of things. You can be a businessman because you know owning a production company at the end of the day is mostly about business. So um, I feel I'm pretty comfortable with this. That said, you know, there's many other things that you can do and that spice up your life. In your case, it's this podcast, you know what I mean? So, yeah, uh, so I, I wouldn't say it's the, you know, the rise of the polymath, right? Everyone's multifaceted. and Yes, yes. I, I would say that I, you know, I've been more polymath in, in my past, like literally at a certain point I was doing 7,000 things. Uh, but in the end, they all they all made sense. Uh, and they they all brought me to to the filmmaking, you know. I've I've worked on TV before, like as a host, and then I worked in magazines for so long, and then I worked a little bit more in touch with fashion than maybe I'm now. But but all these things, like I think, they 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 kind of informed what I do. You know, fashion I still am in touch with, uh, although from a different perspective, less from the you know editor perspective and more from the consultant i guess through my company and um you know i don't host things on tv anymore but it, it's very good to have that kind of comfort when you're interviewing people say in a documentary or anything like that and um you know the the research element that uh, uh you have in documentaries and also when you work at magazines and serves you uh when you need to write a movie because you need to research about it and the curiosity of travel comes out of the documentary and the fact that you need to travel and they both are combined. So, yeah, I, I would define myself as a filmmaker, though, mainly and mostly. So how did you, just rewinding a bit, um, you know, you touched on it there, but kind of that initial step into filmmaking. So, like, you know, when did you notice that you had a passion for it and, like, what were those initial projects that you were doing at the start it's of you building Bravo. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story because I I started my professional career, I think 15, 16 as a model. Then out of there, I went to a random casting in Italy and that was for a TV show. It was actually to be part of an audience for the TV show. And then they liked me so much and I didn't know why it was, I mean, it's not, no one sent me to this casting. I was just walking around. And then they were like, oh, my God, you should come back tomorrow because we're casting the host, not the audience. And I'm like, okay, great. So I went and they got me. And so, you know, out of being this model kid, then I became sort of a VJ kid that was Italian MTV. Then uh, I leveraged the exposure that I got through the, the, the TV venture. And I started consulting for magazines in Italy and having a blog on Rolling Stones and all of these cool things. And then I decided, and it was very nice and comfortable and I was fairly young. And so I wanted to, to just push myself a bit higher. And Italy at that time was a bit, a bit of a recession. 
So everything was very difficult. And I honestly, genuinely was really pushing. I was doing so many things. Uh, if I think back now, I'm like, wow, I, I'm impressed by myself. And uh, But it, I remember it being pretty difficult to to just push and push because, you know, again, the country was not really ready. And, and also when you work on TV, you're always kind of uh, perceived as the guy on TV. And so when you want to do something else creatively, I mean, think about James Franco here in the U.S. I don't know, you know, that sort of kind of thing always discredited you know oh he's just a hollywood actor you know i mean the guy i think did a lot of stuff you know like kudos to him so let's say when i was 18 in in my little you know italian bubble i was trying to do or whatever i was maybe 21 22 i was trying to do the same and i moved to the u.s and obviously i couldn't really host uh tv shows here um because you know not matter tongue and, and also the, the kind of host figure disappeared meaning it, it you know became more of influencers bloggers and things i don't know now like on tv if there's like mtv like it's not about hosting anymore you know it's just about reality shows and stuff so i said what, what should i do and the only thing i knew how to i mean not the only thing but the thing i was gonna doing was being in front of the camera so uh, my agent at the time set me up with some brands that uh it, it specifically was maybelline that was sponsoring New York Fashion Week. You know, I had very good relationship with the fashion kind of system. And uh, and basically I was sort of a reporter, so to speak, for the, the Fashion Week through Maybelline. And, but I had to put together a micro, and I'll get to the point, a micro production for it. Because although I was the guy, you know, I wanted to make the most money possible. And so I said, just give me the budget and I'll make it happen for you. And so for the first time, I had to basically hire a little videographer to follow me around, uh, a little editor, or maybe I learned, no, actually, no, at that time, no, I had to hire an editor that had to edit the stuff, uh, you know, music composer, whatever you need to do for a little production. And I had no idea, literally no idea, absolutely no idea. Uh, but I wanted the budget, so I had to put it together and it came out pretty nice. Um, and then surprisingly, the, the brand had to shoot a commercial on TV in Italy for the makeup. And they asked me to do it, which I mean, was, it was big agency and that did, you know, the, whatever web content and where I was the, the, the reporter. And then they also were, were taking care of the client at large and they had to do this commercial. And so they asked me, do you want to do it? And I said, I mean, I have no idea what do I have to do? And they were like, yeah, but you know, you did good. Blah, blah, blah. And you know, agencies, I mean, if, if anyone listening is familiar with uh, you know commercial world and stuff, but agencies, they usually have a very clear idea on how the commercial has to look so that it's storyboarded and et cetera. So, I mean, you have an input as a director, but it's pretty limited uh, if it's a big agency. So in that case, obviously they had everything. They said, you know, no worries, like you can do it. Or maybe they wanted to spend less money, I don't know, so by hiring. <laughs> So they gave me uh, a budget that for me at the time was like, woo, now probably I'm like, yeah, probably they just wanted to spend less money. And uh, I went to some other kids that actually just, you know, put together a production company back in Milan. And then we had a proper production on set. You know, there was a DP and a catering and, you know, assistants and AC. And I, I remember that was the first time uh, that I thought, wow. This is something I could do. It's pretty great. I'm basically just, you know, setting the mood here and telling people what to do. And everybody's just listening to me. And 
it uh, and I know I, I you know I know the answers to their questions. So I remember actually that day coming back home. I think and telling my dad or something. Hey, I think I found something else that I could like. You know, because um, at that time I I, I think yeah I, I kind of just moved to New York, so it was a transition moment for me. Should I do TV? Should I stop? Should I live in the U.S.? And so it was good to to find this thing. And then to fast forward, I think I started basically in New York. Then I started just doing the same with magazines, um, fashion magazines. They they gave me the access to talents, and I I would just put together for them little contents. But at the time, the, the content was not a thing. You know, brands were not investing. Like if you see Vogue or Condenas now, they have entire divisions based on, you know, content uh, paid by, by you know, top dollars oftentimes with many formats. But at that time, no, like it was basically BTS. Uh, and I was doing something more than the BTS. and But it was not perceived as, as a thing. It was like, what is that? And so no one was paying me really, but I was getting access to, talents which was great because i had the chance to work with major people and i was i guess you know building my craft and uh, and then i always had very uh, huge interest in documentaries and i remember seeing this guy um around town and so i would you know i, I kept on doing these little pieces I, you know, saw like an interview and I would do it with a, with a bit of a flair and na, 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 na. and then PR companies, you know, had me on their phone book and whenever there was something they wanted a PR for, they would maybe reach out. We're talking about no budget, like me with a camera interviewing an artist and doing it in a cute way so that it could get some press coverage. And through one of these pieces, it was Paula Pivi. She was opening at Perro 10 in New York. I got in touch with Nowness. Uh, I did a funky interview with her and, and their polar bears. She has this work of art where there's like polar bears with uh, feathers instead of fur. And so they were answering the questions. And they actually had an interview with Paula and the bears. The bears were actually talking. Um, and, you know, everyone loved it. And it went on Nowness, which was my very first piece ever going on Nowness. And, and from there, I kept on doing these little things. I did, you know, I, I just tried to find characters and, and then I always traveled and went to Colombia and did something else there. And, you know, I kept on just filmmaking by myself. Uh, went to do the Trans-Siberian and uh, filmed that. And at a certain point, uh, I moved to LA again in a sort of a transition. I felt for some reason, I don't know, I did what I had to do in New York <laughs> or just I wanted, you know, to explore more. Um, and in LA, I wanted to do a, a more serious piece about this guy whose name is James Goldstein, who's a billionaire uh, living in a wonderful Lautner house that actually has been used uh, uh, as the, the the house of the, you know, in the Big Lebowski, the movie. And um, he's an incredible guy. And I've always seen him. He's at every NBA game, every fashion show. And he's old. He's like 70 now. He's probably even older. So he looks like a sort of a space cowboy, a very old guy, uh, bald man, head to toe, and, and very mysterious. So, you know, I, but I've always seen him around fashion weeks and stuff. And I always thought, who's this guy? And then I, I managed to reach out to him and I shot a little piece. 
And that piece went very well. It was picked by Naunet. Farfetch saw the piece. At the time, they had to do a, a campaign that was based by Droga5 that was based on, on, on followers. So they kind of wanted documentaries where you could not see the person, but just get their vibe. And I shot the James pieces exactly like that. And so they loved it. And, and, and then from then I did this whole campaign. And I guess this is when Bravo became more of a reality. We, uh, while I was shooting all these things, um, already, you know, some, some editors, specifically Stefano Tonki, that at the time was at W, um, reached out to us and, and asked us if we could help with staff. In that case, it was a, actually um, a Ukes thing with him. And we did, did more of an event thing. So I put together like a collective of, of friends, because, sorry, but one second back, when I moved from New York to LA, I said, well, I feel like I know all of these people and I'm doing all of these things, but there's no reality to prove, like there's no uh, entity. And it would be nice if I could create this sort of entity. And and so I just reached out to the, my friends and I said, hey, wh- why don't we pitch ourselves to these people? Like I have access to these people. Maybe they want to do something and let's do it. And so Stefano Tonki was the, the first client, I guess, because he had to do something with Ukes. So Ukes was the client. And then we put together for him like a beautiful event for PT and a video and et cetera, et cetera. And then I think at, in the same time, uh, I moved to LA and I shot this James thing, and that brought me to Farfetch. And uh, then it, it felt more of a of an actual thing. And to wrap it up, then I know you know we're probably going to talk about it later. But I think at the beginning, I've never been still. So even when we had this these clients that at the time you know felt very big deal, the the money we would get, we would immediately reinvest to produce more stuff, uh, both, I guess, to, to, to be more confident in what was I trying to do as a director and to, to showcase the work, because at the end of the day, that, that's what it is. Very thankful for Nowness. They've been supportive, you know, since day one, and we've had beautiful relationship, um, and it keeps on going, and, you know, that's very important, and I think... Then, you know, became Vimeo with their staff picks and stuff. But the idea is everything we did, then again, reinvest and, and do a documentary. And, and then what happened is that Werner Herzog, which was, you know, one of my idols, he has this rock film school. Every year he chooses 40 people from around the world and teaches them filmmaking. And I don't know if he still does it because now he has the masterclass and stuff, but um, at the time, it was more of a you know secluded, exclusive thing, and I managed to get in. And then I went to Germany, and we had this beautiful, like week long, uh, very philosophical approach to filmmaking. And that's when I felt okay, like this, this is this could be a career or just a mission or just a way of seeing the world, and I could make something out of it. And then Bravo, from there, you know, from being a creative collective. People started asking us, you know, uh, more and more and more video because then from from it being only BTS, then it started to become, you know, a need. And I guess then I I decided, okay, I mean, I guess we're a production company by now because everyone is just asking us video. I mean, we do many things, but that's our core business. And so uh, then we embraced it and, um, and it became 
I guess, a, sort of an iteration of what it is today. But it always changes. Like I'm working on the website now for the new kind of, you know, restyling. It's going to change again to an extent, you know. Fantastic. Well, wow. Thank you so much for sharing us that detail. Um, you know, what, what a great story and just shows like, even when you were kind of starting out, you know, you, you take, take the opportunity and, and even, you know, doing what you needed to do, whether that was with little budget or whatever. And it just shows that you had, you know, you can kind of continue doing that, got to work with some amazing people. And it just, you know, that one project then sparked what's now, you know, kind of led you to actually being doing this as a full professional career and to even, you know, having, got to a point where you could work with some of your idols and, and now create this fantastic uh, platform and, and also company. So thank, thanks for sharing that. It was really interesting. Um, yeah, of course. On the website, you have a one line, relationships, not rosters. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. Actually, the fact that you're telling me in the new website, it just came to my mind that I need to reintegrate this because now it's like the branding is going to be different. But I do think this is very important. Because um, basically production companies, they operate on the base of a roster. So you represent a number of directors and then you, you grow them. You know, and you, they grow with you, you grow with them. And there is a, this mutual uh, relationship. It works. It's amazing. Um, I do think it, it's not what I'm interested in as an executive producer, so to speak, um, because I believe that you know, I, I tried at a certain point, but I found myself basically pitching my directors, like forcefully pitching them uh, for something when I knew of someone else that was a freelancer that could have been better for that specific job. And I think that the nature of the business, I mean, it, so if, if you want to have an overhead heavy company in where, you know, the kind of investment you do is more geared towards um you know, having a structure, an office, uh, uh, a team, and et cetera, that I think it's it's fine because then, you know, you invest all of your um, resources into growing talent. And then you need to require from talent a sort of a, a very strong, deep loyalty. And I mean, sometimes, you know, then they, they will not still end up going with someone bigger than you. I talked to many producers that had, you know, very cool companies with a roster. And then, you know, once, once you grow them to an extent, they will still probably, if they're very good, go to the big, big, big players, you know, in the industry that backed by, you know, serious financiers and, uh, and all of that. So that's a risk. But aside from the risk, I think it's more that uh, I like to see ourselves as, as, as a, a consultancy company not only a production company so the the ethos is that as a client you come you have a need and what you're paying for is the culture obviously um, the company culture but also the expertise in us recommending you to whoever would fit the bill best you know so rather than trying which is different i think it's just a different kind of client because the client that goes to the normal production company that has a roster uh, does not need that kind of consultancy. They're going for that company because they probably want someone that is already on the roster. So they want a specific director that the company represents. And then, you know, the company comes with the director. They they probably make sure that everything is great and top-notch, blah, blah, blah. In our instance, I prefer clients that come to us and have maybe a little bit less of an idea of what they need, or maybe they know what they need. They don't know exactly how to get it. And so I think what we do 
we get to the line, relationships, not rosters, it's through the relationships that we have in the industry, we can get them the director that probably fits the creative better, uh, even the producer that fits the creative better. You know, there's so many producers, like, and a lot of these producers, most of them are freelancers, and they're used by big, big companies, small companies, medium companies. It's just a matter of, you know, if, if I need to produce a, a mega shoot versus like a, a, you know, easy, compact one, I'm not going to choose the same producer, probably, right? So uh, same thing, actually. And, and the more, you know, at the beginning, it was kind of controversial, this choice, because people want, want, want you to have an office, want you to have like things. But um, we never did. And I was a bit um, uh, almost, uh, you know, in difficulty to, to, to say that at the beginning. But now I'm super proud. Like it's, it's, it's very pre-COVID. Uh, you know? <laughs> like it's, it's how the world is going to go regardless. And I think the, I'd rather invest the, the money in getting top talent when, when I need it, when I know that that's the right talent for that specific job, then, uh, then by having someone on team on a payroll that is great and obviously sometimes you know saves you a lot of hassle but it's just sort of a security like uh, it's not maybe the best bet for every project it's just good enough for every project but it's not the best you could get so by saving on that i can oftentimes afford you know the best person for every project because i just think that you know they are the ones that are going to interpret it in in in, in the best way. So um, it's great also because directors don't, don't, you know, I don't have the pressure of having to feed them like as if they were my child. Um, and they don't have the pressure of, of owning me something. You know what I mean? Like if I have a business opportunity, I'll come to you because you're the right person for it. And if you want to do it, we have a deal that's as, as easy as it is. And I'm going to nurture you, of course, in the process. But um, I'm just out there to to connect. You know what I'm trying to say. So for me, uh, it, it's important, and it's it's based more on 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 offer and demand. You know what I mean? Like if if there is demand and I can connect it with the offer, then that's great. Not not as uh, coldly as in a brokerage system, you know. But at the end of the day. If there is a mutual understanding of why we're in business together, then that works great. And it, the mutual understanding is based on relationship and respect for each other's work, which yeah. is the most important thing in the end. Absolutely. And I think, you know, your that model was slightly ahead of its time. I think now, you know, you're seeing a lot of people wanting to work in a more lean, agile way. And I think, you know, by having kind of the overall culture and kind of the the vision that you stand by, you know, that inherently attracts the best of the best or people that are wanting or aspiring to work with you. And then it works both ways, enabling then you to be able to provide kind of your clients with kind of an amazing variety of, of creatives that then can work on their brief, which is fantastic. So no, I think it's, it makes complete sense. Um, Looking at, you know, we, we, we touched on a lot, a lot of the commercial work and, and it's fantastic. You know, you're working with brands such as Timberland, Samsung, um, Billie Eilish and the Spotify um, a video, Peroni Nassau Azzurro. Um, do you put, are you putting as much passion into that commercial work to kind of feed more of the, the special projects and documentaries? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just very different processes, you know. I think special projects and documentaries, which let's call it like original content, eventually the goal for, for that division uh, now at this day and age is, you know, it's going to be called Studio now in the new iteration. The new iteration, it, you know, it's, it's basically we are a creative production studio. So the creative is everything that we do when clients need not only the production, uh, but also the creative. So we, we do both, but, you know, I name it creative because we're basically uh, becoming an agency of sorts. We, we're defining for them what's the brief. So they might have an idea, but we, we put it down so that we can better share it with our network. Uh, the production is when the brief is very, very clear and all we have to do is execute it slash maybe match it with some director and execute it. The studio is when, you know, there's no uh, originally uh, commission, but it's it's pure development. And so I was thinking the kind of, it, it would be for, uh, with, and on, you know? So the, the creative is is for, the production is with, and the studio is on, uh, meaning we do it with, we do it for, and we put, we find a partner uh, on on where we can we can put it, uh, which in the past have been online platforms such as Nowness, National Geographic, you know, Vimeo, Short of the Week, Your uh, Magazine, you name it. Um, in the future, I would like it to be networks. So. Uh, it's it's two different things. On one end, you have commercials, and there is a commission, and the the passion that you put there is, is really to find the, the the right person that is gonna nail the brief for the client, and that's very important, and it's great. And then it's more of a churning numbers kind of job, which is also cool, you know, like okay, how can I make this happen for this amount of money and still make money on top of this? And how can I make it less expensive, but you know, good quality and et cetera? The development, obviously, there is this whole thing as well, but um at least in the beginning, and we are in the early stage of that, but it's it's just development and development, it's it's a different beast. Like you need to understand what's a story, why is the story, why is it gonna work, what's the audience, no, no, no. Because eventually the, there is one main difference, I'd say, from a business perspective. In in one instance, someone is coming at you with a bunch of money and you need to make happen what they want. In the the latter, you're coming up <laughs> at someone with an idea and they need to give you the money for it. So I guess it's the reverse process, right? Like in a commercial, someone comes and says, I have this money, do this. And in the other thing, you do something and then you hope someone is going to give you the money for it. So that's actually interesting. I never thought about it this way. Yeah, absolutely. But you mentioned, I guess, you know, you're quite evolved now as a business and you've got some fantastic, you know, case studies and, and examples of work. You know, what you said at the start, you were reinvesting money from commercial work to do the documentaries to showcase new directing styles or your aesthetic. I mean, now I guess that's not as much of a priority because you're up and running and you're doing great projects, but is it now more you're doing the documentaries more because of your own personal interest rather than still trying to showcase new stuff? Or are you still using that vehicle to promote Bravo? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think you, you never should sit down too comfortably. So definitely, I mean, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think we will. And yeah, no, I mean, we will and we have to, to still produce things. Let's just say that I, I think it's because we're trying to go to a different level, um, it takes more time. And the goal is is not to be, you know, published on some online platforms anymore it's 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 possibly like to be published on the online platform but it's it i wouldn't want it to be the final destination so now the the thought process is okay how can i do something that eventually can also get published in a platform okay like we kind of nailed that side you know we we, we got it but also can be a proof of concept for a longer series you know and so when you start thinking like this from from this range of subjects, you know, it becomes this, and from this becomes even this narrower because there's more elements that are required out of the story, the treatment, and and the whole overall development uh, for it. So, I think it's still important to have stuff out there, definitely, because if not, you, you're not relevant anymore. Uh, I also think at a certain point, you kind of care less about being so relevant in a way, uh, you know, like you run a business, you just want the business to be profitable. So that's another point that I can see. Like you're you're not that, uh, you don't have this kind of teenage fire that you want to be the coolest one, you know, on the block. Um, and I guess this happens because eventually you, you want to outgrow yourself. And when it comes to outgrowing yourself, you just want to put stuff out there that it's going to allow you to do this next step. And, and that kind of stuff, it's it just it's just a different beast. So it takes a different approach and that approach has to be learned because it's not that immediate. Uh, and eventually once you get it, then the whole effort can be just geared towards that. You know, once you have one thing in development for a network, once once you start getting a bit in that groove, then your mind totally shifts and the stuff that you're putting out is always going to be meant to become something longer. Maybe at a certain point, you're not going to even need to put out stuff because you already have the direct context to let it become something longer. You know what I mean? So it's a very interesting question. And I think from a business perspective, it's very good to think about it. Um, But uh, it's a combination of, of the two. I think putting stuff out is always important but also knowing why you're putting stuff out. Let's put it this way. Absolutely. And just just lastly, to touch on one of the other things that you guys highlight on your site um, before we get more into kind of your own creative process, but um, Bravo X uh, kind of doing some really innovative, progressive social kind of content, digital activations such as Kim.Guru, Daily Miley, and, and Gigi for Vogue. I mean, is that something that we're going to see in, in the, the updated version of, of your website? Or is that? Just- yeah, that, that's that's a good question. I think that is gone. <laughs> because, no, once again, because that was part of um, very exciting and funny and interesting kind of collective moment of creative kids getting together and doing stuff and getting the name out there. Uh, but that that exactly embodies what I've been talking about. Like, yes, you could do it, but why would you put it? Would you put out there? You know, one when we put it out there, it you know we wanted to establish the brand. We wanted to have fun. Um, we wanted to experiment. Uh, 
we I had in house someone that was more of a digital person, so we wanted also to leverage eventually that kind of side of the business. Um, now I don't know if it would make super sense, or on the contrary, it would kind of dilute you know the the message. I think there's gonna be on the website an archive section and where these things are gonna live. But I don't think anyone is going to come to us today and ask us to do, you know, a, a crazy website about some crazy stuff. Uh, because there's people that dedicate, and these, by the way, are the people that I hire to do my new website. You know, right? there's people that their business is that. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, if, if you were to come to Bravo, you don't come to us to to, to create some weird digital activation. You come to us because you want like a film production. You know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, but this is it. it's great that you, as you said, you kind of, it, there was a moment you, yeah. you delivered on the moment and, you know, you've really kind of grown as a business and, you know, found that actually, you know, filmmaking is our sweet spot and that's what we want to focus on moving forward. And I think that's very fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. So I love these things. I mean, Kim.guru, I think it's great. Could you just um, quickly, quickly but, describe what the Kim.guru thing is for the audience? Kim.guru basically, uh, I don't know even how it happened, man. but basically it's, it's, you can predict the weather. Uh, it's a weather forecast tool, but um, you basically understand the weather based on, on or, or rather the system matches the weather with a Kim outfit. So you type the city in where you're at and the system will come back at you with uh, Kim Kardashian's wearing something appropriate for the weather of that specific city, which was very cute. And it went, I cannot even tell you, like the, the most viral thing ever. I think it has been picked by the countless media outlets. And it was a very fun moment. <laughs> but I mean... It was funny for us, you know, we would call each other and be like, yo, man, like, look at that. Oh, my God, the site is crashing. But nothing honestly came out of that, which is totally fine. Nothing should come out of this. Um, did, you have a, but, did you have another version built for yourself? So Yvonne's uh, weather predictor app? I actually <laughs> should. Now that I have, actually should. It'd be pretty boring, though. It'd just all be Black Prada. <laughs> yeah, actually, you're, <laughs> you're right. Kind of boring. <laughs> um, right. Also, Mal, we've, we've talked business about Bravo, and it's yeah super interesting, but I want to kind of get a bit more under the skin of Yvonne and your creative process uh, as a film director. So to do that, I thought it'd be great to actually choose one of your films um, and I'd like to focus on can't no or can't nobody else love you, which is um, you know a fantastic short that you've shot in New York. Um, I've got some questions that I'll ask in terms of the process and the inspiration and stuff, but it'd be great maybe if you just kind of open with you know what what is this film about? I think the film. Thank you, first of all. And I think the film is. Um, a study uh, about uh, the relationship that exists between you trying to make it as a state of mind, you know, someone trying to make it and New York as a city and whatever happens in between these two paradigms, you know, New York as a city, not actually the geographical, you know, uh, iteration of it just because a state of mind. So you trying to make it, New York, what happens in between? Um, assuming that, you know, you're trying to make it uh, because you need to make it. Uh, so, you you know, you're coming from 
from a situation where you need to prove yourself or at least it's not that comfortable. And uh, it started as, as honestly an exploration of youth in New York. And then it became, it became what I just described because I think New York took over as a character um, and, and the, the, the kind of youth that New York breeds, I think is very specific and it only exists in New York and the kind of uh, uh, psychological pressure that the city puts on you and, and the kind of possibilities you have as a, as a young artist. Um, so it, it basically chronicles the, the lives of, uh, I guess, a dozen young artists um, that are, are just trying to, to make it and, and they're struggling or they're succeeding or they're, ju they're just building their narrative. And these are the supposedly cool kids, you know, they're the ones that if everything goes according to plan, hopefully in, in 10 years will be, you know, the new creators, uh, but maybe not, you know what I mean? But now in New York, they have their, their spotlight and, and they're trying to do something with it. And I approached it uh, wanting to write a love letter to the city but I ended up being much more crude than that because uh, the, 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 the story and the psychological was very hard for me to show that thing because the, the psychological state of the protagonists and the uncertainty and, and uh, their age, I guess, and in general, like the hardship uh, that they, that we went through filming it because we had to deal with these kids and, uh, you know, sometimes they, they were going through stuff um, and and that they have, you know, day to day. So I, I never imagined I would be there filming, you know, people doing drugs and, and by doing drugs, I mean, it's fine. It's not about them doing drugs. It's just seeing that they were, mm, uh, they were handicapped by their drug use. You know what I mean? That they were, uh, addict so uh it was it was very interesting now i mean it seems very <laughs> very drama it's not it's a beautiful piece i think it's a very raw representation of what it means or how it feels rather than what it means uh to be an artist in new york when you're young and and trying to do your thing you know and a lot of the the kind of the, the scenes are in bathrooms or bedrooms or rooftops like was that planned to kind of emphasize this loneliness uh no i mean that's the thing you know it, it seems sort of a, of a of an aesthetic choice but let's not forget i mean in a way probably it was but in you know new york this is what it is like especially if you're a kid and you don't have so much money and you end up in a in a, in a little house that is not very big you probably have roommates you probably need to be in your room and your kind of relief area is the rooftop or the city itself, but the city itself is noisy. There's a lot of people going around, you know what I mean? So it's a kind of a whirlwind of, of other, you know, and there's not, you know, think about it. Like today, like this is obviously pre-COVID, but regardless, you know, everyone does things digitally. Um, either they meet in public spaces like a park, or they're in, in, you know, in their bathrooms, in their in their living rooms, in their houses, in, in their living rooms if they have one. I mean, um, so that that sense of uh, claustrophobia, I think, it's it's very accurate because this is just where we would meet these guys. You know? <laughs> like, and we and you know, you're in production, so you're like, okay, 
where should we shoot? Like, where is the best location? Like, let's do this and that. And it wouldn't feel authentic sometimes because like, these kids are very outspoken. So they were like, I fucking hate the place. I would never go to that place. Like, I'm like, okay, so what do you do? I'm like, I'm home. Okay, let's shoot at home. You know what I mean? Like, this is just how it is. Um, but I'm happy it comes out. I'm happy it, it's felt because, um, you know, it, it, again, shooting it was not super easy because you would really feel this, this heaviness uh, to it. And also they're very, I mean, some of them are, are joyful and, and very nice, but most of them, because they're super Gen Z, and I, I don't want to generalize, but they were kind of unreliable when it came to timing and cold time, you know, and we were like, oh, we're, it's a production, we're spending money here, you know, but um, How do it you was find them part of the thing. We did a mega, actually, it was very fun. We did a mega casting and literally uh, half of... Uh, Lower Manhattan came. Uh, it was very fun. Well, you uh, sat actually, there like on a table, just like next, next, next. <laughs> no, it was amazing. We had no, 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 for real. It was a big casting, and and there were so many people that they, you know, we were in a building and they had to wait on the roof, and it was exciting. And uh, we had a uh, we had tapes actually, like casting tapes. I think I have them somewhere else. I think in ten years those are going to be amazing. Yeah, uh, because we interviewed all of them, and there is some characters, you know, like. That then came, we didn't decide to include maybe, but then had their own thing. You know, I remember these twins, I don't remember their name, but they're insane. <laughs> they're very funny. Uh, I'll, I'll come up with the name, but there's they're like twins with a lot of work done and, and they're very funny and outrageous. And, and uh, yeah, anyways, there were a lot of characters that they will have their thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and I want to just, Jump in contrast to another uh, film you've made um, with with Nowness, I believe it's a series to mm-hmm. um, you know exploring how gender impacts our lives, um, and this was actually defined gender mushes, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and they are they are people that are considered Mexico's third gender individuals who were assigned male at birth but lived their lives as as women. So, can you tell us about that project yes so uh i think they would be normally considered transgender in in our society but uh because uh they have such a strong identity uh culturally speaking in a specific region of mexico which is the east more region uh close to oaxaca then they they took uh, an identity of, of themselves which is you know this musha identity and it's just very interesting to see how Mexico generally, you know, not the most open country when it comes to, uh, you know, LGBTQT and et cetera, um, uh, totally accepts these, uh, these, uh, this community in, in, in specifically in Huchitan and in the, in the Eastern region. And it's very fascinating because uh, there is just this understanding of uh, uh, a fluid uh, upbringing when it comes uh, to sexuality and gender. So it's very beautiful because in in that part of, of, of Mexico, the idea of conceiving sexuality or, or gender attribution as something fluid is uh, very accepted. And I guess it's because Puchitan and, and the Istmo area is a very matriarchal city or, or community. And so the women have the, the power, so to speak. And I think the Musha tradition connects with with that 
matriarchal society. But, you know, it's, it's a very, very complex uh, topic. Um, it, it, it's not as easy as it seems. The, the, the film is kind of a poetic ode to, to, to that. But obviously there's still a lot of discrimination. Uh, many of, of the Musha need to be sex workers and, and sometimes they get killed, you know. I wanted the film to feel uh, an inspiring piece for the LGBTQ community. And, and to me, and this is gonna connect with what I believe filmmaking is, um, it, you know, it speaks a deeper truth, but it, it might be not as factual. I mean, everything is factual and it's very real, um, but, you know, the way we portrayed it, obviously elevated it so that it could be uh, a vessel for for inspiration and, and to, to kind of shed a beautiful light on 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 that side of the world or you know because then I I started um, studying uh, how many of these communities in the world exist that are considered their genders and there is countless and it's beautiful because it means that you know and and some of them mix up with the the sort of colonizing power of, of the church. So, you know, I mean, I, I was raised, uh, you know, Catholic and Orthodox because my grandma is uh, Russian. So I, I have very strong connection with religion, but I also do understand how religion impacted, you know, indigenous communities and et cetera. So in, in, in Mexico, for example, the Musha, they, it's interesting because they're accepted in, into church and they really care. So there is this uh, connection with, with Catholicism at the same time, that area specifically, you know, the whole um, ancestral part of, of the culture conceived uh, a third gender because, uh, you know, the, the, the maze was third gender. Uh, and the maze obviously was a sort of a kind of a, a god, right? Because it would provide for the food and etc. Oof, in Naples, in Italy, there's the Feminelli, which is also another third gender culture absolutely accepted in Naples. It's incredible, you know, like uh, Italy also not super accepting of, you know, trans and et cetera. Naples, Feminelli are absolutely uh, super uh, integrated, if not crucial part to uh, the city, you know, in a specific area, at least of the city. So there is, there is folklore to, to this. There is, uh, you know, anthropology, history, it is incredible. It is very, very fascinating. And they're spread out all over the world. And, and now I think they're kind of, it's kind of going back. So I don't know, it's, 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 it's a very delicate moment. But I thought it was interesting to document that it's something that has been going on, you know, uh, for centuries. And we just forgot about it, but it, it still exists. You know, it has always existed and hopefully it's, it will exist more. It's, it's no news, you know what I mean? Like the, the fact that gender can be fluid has been going around for many, 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 many years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that insight. Um, so th there were just two kind of contrasting examples that I, I've selected out of the many films that you've worked on. But, um, you know, I wanted to do that to kind of provide the audience with, a, with some context and examples of your work. Um, so kind of now, just generally, I'd love to learn a bit more about your creative process, you know, looking at, you kind of use a lot of kind of point of view um, type film work and, and also kind of music is something that you use quite dramatically as well. Um, would just like to, yeah, learn a bit more about that creative process and how you find the inspiration or come up with the idea for the film and then, and then how important the, the elements are in post-production as well. 
Mm, so I think when it comes to documentary, I would say in general filmmaking. I always quote, you know, uh, this teaching from Werner Herzog, which says um, facts are different than truth. And this means sometimes we, we, we tend to confound the two elements, facts and truth, but they're very, very different, very, very different. And it's, 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 it's important to keep it in mind. It's important to keep in mind that we don't need to be factual as filmmakers. What we need possibly is to tell the truth, but the truth is not fact. The truth is a much deeper message uh, that is not apparent to the eyes. And this is why you need sometimes film because otherwise, you know, we would uh, not need any, any kind of artistic person. You know, we could just walk around and, and, and get the truth with our eyes, which is not the case, um, especially ecstatic, poetic truth, so to speak. And so that kind of truth needs oftentimes fabrication. It, it, it's kind of a paradox, but I firmly believe in it. And so... You know, my work is based on that. And, you know, if we want to talk about posts, for example, it, it, it's just a very easy way to understand it, you know. But if you shoot something and then you put a specific music to that scene, you're alterating, you're fabricating the, the truth of what you shot or the facts, at least, or not the truth. You're fabricating the facts of what you shot. But but by doing so, you, you reach a deeper truth because, you know, that moment, if combined with a specific music, is gonna elicit emotions that speak um, better to the truth of the situation. You know, if you were same, but you know, this is post, but same with light, uh, you know, the angle. <laughs> the moment you have a media in your hand, like you're already fabricating. And I think it's good to embrace the fabrication. It's good to be bold about it. Uh, even if you do documentaries, it's good to have uh, not only a point of view, you know, not only your point of view, it's like relative. I mean, yes, it's important. You're the director, but it's more the point of view of the story. Like, what is the story? Why is this thing? Um, why, why does it matter? Not from a factual point of view, at least for me. I mean, there's people that love the factual movie. I couldn't care less. I'm serious. But from a deeper place, why is this thing interesting to me? I mean, to me as a creator, but also hopefully to someone who watches it. What is it that 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 here that that speaks to me from a deeper place, you know, not not from what I see? What does it mean, you know? And 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 then the next step is how can I use the tools at my disposal to convey that truth that I that the thing that that triggers me? What can I use to make it happen? And then you can use anything you want, you know, the camera, the format, the music, the editing, and all of this, I guess the direction with the characters. You know what I mean? I mean, even we talked about the Can Nobody Else Love You. If you go to the kids, you know, and you just film them, nothing is going to come out. You know, you cannot just be a fly on the wall. You know, as, as Herzog says, become a bee that stings. You know what I mean? You need to guide them because you understand what's going on or you believe, and it might not be right, you know, but this is the story you want to say. And, and you need to kind of have them as partners in in being like, okay, this is what's going on in my opinion, you know, with you, with, but not you specifically, like with, with what you represent. Like, can we try and, and, and make it happen like this? You know, you cannot feed them with words they cannot say and they don't want to say, of course. But I'm just saying, you know, like setting up the scene so that the, 
the message comes through, even if there's no like specific message. So, and now, you know, I'm working on a, on a feature uh, narrative one. And it's interesting because uh, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. You're letting me realize many things. Today by speaking <laughs> it's kind of the opposite because uh, you inform, I guess, since it's a, it's, a, it's a narrative piece, I have the opposite process. So I inform all the narrative with facts. And then I, I attach them to the, the, the narrative side that is a fabrication. But, I, but I, love, I love that, though, because I think with Mushes, for example, it's mm-hmm. like, say the story, the fact of what it is, A to B. You, you tell that narrative line, but then it's almost like the dreamlike kind of, you know, championing the Mushes or the emotion or what they're feeling is the truth, right? So, like, you know, I don't think every day the Mushes walk into a river in a dress or... Right, exactly. Uh, in the full like fashion couture lingerie, you know what I mean? But it's like A to B, we were getting told the story by you, but then also we're seeing these kind of uh, bursts of like emotional truth, which I think is so beautiful that the way you put together. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you got the point, you know, obviously she doesn't go, you know, it's like, yeah. but somehow, you know, you see it and it makes sense, you know, and, and you're like, okay, okay. So I think with, with, a, with a narrative, it's kind of the opposite because I guess you, you, but it's, it's together, like you write it, but then I need to have the factual, uh, the factual side to it. So in that sense, I'm more documentarian because I'm doing a totally fantasy movie. Like it's not a story that exists, it doesn't exist. And so I need for the story to be anchored in something real. I guess it's the same process. It's just, you know, because in one case it's a documentary, in the other it's a, it's a narrative, it, it, it reversed. The process at the end, it's gonna be always the same. Like, there is a fiction part that it's anchored in reality and vice versa. So I, I see, but you know, my, the, the guy I'm writing with, he's much more of a narrative guy. You know, every time I stop him, I'm like, no, this is bullshit. Like, or, or maybe no, maybe it's not bullshit. Let me find something that happened sometimes in history. And then we'll work based on that and we'll twist it up a little bit, you know, because I hate watching movies and they're cool, but like there's total nonsense. It's like, this is not going to happen. So not in the sense of the truth, because again, this is totally fine, but in the sense of, of, this is when I watch a feature, not a documentary, but in the sense of, uh, for, for it to have a sort of a, uh, uh, adherence to, to what's really the, the, the going on in the world. So I guess, yeah, it's the opposite for me. I'm, I'm realizing as I talk. With documentaries, I think you need to push the truth and with the truth of the ecstatic part. And with fiction, since what you're doing is all about the truth of the ecstatic part, because you're making a movie, so you're starting from that assumption, I think what you need to push is make sure that the truth has some grounding in real stuff, because otherwise it it, it fades away. In a documentary, since you are already filming the real stuff, I mean... You don't have to worry about that. It's there right in front of you. So just worry about the ecstatic truth. And in a feature, since you're filming something that does not exist because you made it up, then you need to worry about it being anchored in something that sometimes existed. So that's, that's it, I guess. Love it. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> I, I, you know, this I'm going to say when, <laughs> when I'm going to uh, release my movie. I'll be like, yeah, I'll have a, have a thanks at the end credits. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
would you say you have a signature style? And if so, what is that? I mean, is that just all what we discussed or is that kind of overall teachings or, do, or would you yeah, say like, can everyone like watch a film and know that's an Ivan film? Well, usually I believe I, I tend to uh, focus a lot on details of, of people. Yeah, whether it's like hands or jewelry or the steering wheel. Yeah, or, yeah. Like, yeah I guess that's visually speaking, because I think, you know, uh, poetically, we just described it. I think visually, again, I guess because things, uh, objects, accessories, details, I think speak to the truth of the character more than the character itself, you know, little gestures. I think I love this kind of stuff. And I love it with inanimated objects and things as well. I love it, you know, like how window is, uh, how, how have you used it? You know, like objects show that you choose, show how people walk. I'm always fascinated when I go to the cobbler, you know, and they tell me how you walk this way or that way because they can see from the shoe, the personality of the person, you know? So I think objects and things speak a lot about that. And I often find myself uh, going for that kind of stuff, or at least being intrigued personally when when I'm in, you know, when I'm on set or by by that stuff more more than anything else. But I reckon it'd be quite interesting if you feel the same way when it comes to commercial work, like because you're like that in documentary or or your normal films. Would would you then be fantastic at shooting jewelry because you love detail, you know? Uh, no, it's a, it's a good point. And as I was speaking, I was thinking about it. I think in, in commercials, uh, because for example, if I were to do a narrative film, I always say like, I would have to recreate the whole scenario and then let it play. Uh, and then let it play as if it was real so that I can focus on that kind of stuff that I'm interested in. You know, I think with commercials or, or in general narrative, it's a bit more difficult because it's a set. And so there's no human stuff around. You know, if you go into a house, like the house of those kids, it's amazing. You have so many things, so many things because they live there, you know? Um, and I guess this is why in my life I'm, I'm so minimal, I guess. It's a sort of a adverse reaction to this. Like if you come to my house, there's kind of nothing that lets you understand who am I, you know? Like I don't have many objects on my desk or anything like that. I mean, obviously I do, but, but usually when you go to people's houses, there's so many things and those things are so interesting. And so I guess the challenge when you do a commercial is because you don't need all these things, like you need to style it so that it feels like a little thing. I mean, I have a good eye for these things so I can just place them and, and but it's obviously a little less exciting because I'm the one that placed them. You know what I mean? So I already know those are the things, but I guess for the viewer, it's fine because I can place those things. Like it feels a little, a little more uh, humane, so to speak. No. So we're, we're coming towards the episode, Sandy, because I could literally talk to you for like three hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, we've got a few more questions. <laughs> we've got a few more questions. So um, wh what are you curious about right now? I mean, you mentioned a feature, but just in general, in life, I mean, what are you curious about? I'm always very curious about everything. I think uh, I'm very curious about, uh, you know, what's going to happen in terms of... Uh, AIs and, and all of that, like how, how the singularity, so to speak, how are we going to be able to blend into, into this, this new paradigm and, and how is that going to happen? And I know it's going to be settled, but to what extent are we going to be influenced and, and impacted by technology advancing into our daily lives and why and, and really what's, what's up and, and how is that going to 
going to play out. Um, long-term effects of, of the pandemic also, I think, they're kind of overlooked. Um, I'm, I'm talking about long-term, not now. Like, how is this going to shape, in general, our understanding of um, basic things? And I do think that there's something to be said, and it's it's it, we don't know yet. Maybe no way. I mean, there's history is full of instances and where nothing really happened. Uh, but I think for at least semi-generation or et cetera, you know, there's definitely going to be something. But again, more from a from a philosophical perspective than a practical one. I don't think practically some you know, obviously some stuff is going to change, but how are we going to perceive things differently? Already you were talking, you know, about businesses. There's a lot like this stuff impacts the world at large. You know, if, if businesses rethink the way they're doing things and the way they have people into into offices and et cetera. So there's something to be said about that. I was talking to a friend now. Uh, he, he is an editor at a fashion magazine and now he got all obsessed about, um, you know, sustainability, for example. I'm, I'm not very expert, but it's, it's something interesting from his perspective because he was saying, you know, fashion now, it's going to come up that there's no, they're starting to trace things, but, and, and this tra traceability concept, I think goes back also to what I was saying in the long-term impacts of the pandemic. I think there's going to be an idea of, of tracing things, not mm -hmm. the viruses itself, but like where this thing come from, uh, can we mix it with the other things if it comes from another place? Uh, where is my community? Can I mix it with the other community? So in, I think in a way, digitally, we will be able to mix things a lot, but physically, we will mix uh, ourselves a bit less, I guess. Um, so that's something interesting. And then obviously, because I've been writing this, this movie, I'm recently very interested in the stock market because I have always perceived that as something so distant from me as uh, being a creator or, you know, an artistic uh, driven person. But I realized that it's actually so fascinating and it has to do obviously so much with uh, mass psychology and uh, human behavior and predictability and, and how, you know, these movements really affect our day-to-day -day lives. And there's something incredible. And leave alone then, if you are actually invested, how that affects uh, your own psychological state and, and how you need to work on yourself so much in order to not be dragged around by these waves of, of basically um, people betting on, on the outcomes of the world, you know? So there's, there's a lot uh, of interesting stuff there because you know, the money movement is really just people, um, it's really just people expressing their opinions on, on a specific thing. And, and by, by it being a mass action, it influences actually the culture at large. It's a cascade effect, you know? And, it's, and you're in the middle of this like hurricane, you know? And you need to kind of keep your position solid, really not knowing what's gonna happen. No one really knows, you know? So it's, it's really interesting, again, from, from that kind of intellectual perspective. Um, uh, so that's it, I think. And how do you keep productive? Do you have a, a morning routine? Are you, are you big on your well-being? Yeah, I'm pretty big on that kind of stuff, yeah. I have Peloton. I love Peloton. Yeah. And, uh, have, you, uh, have you done rides with uh, Alex Toussaint? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, actually. Yesterday, I had a 45-minute 
Club Bangers Ride. Yeah, yeah. it's the best. It's amazing. <laughs> feel huh? good, look good, feel. <laughs> I love him. I mean, I, I love a couple of them. I also love, um, oh my God, it skips my name, the, the British guy. He's yeah, very. Ben. ben Oldis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very serious, though. <laughs> I love him. Like, okay, now you go. It looks at you like this now. And you're like sweating like a pig, you know? And some people, like there's the other guy, Flamboyant, Cody Rigsby, you know, they talk and talk and talk and make jokes and then and put the music. So you kind of don't think about, but with Ben Oldis, you're just there like suffering and the guy's just silent looking at you and saying, go for it. <laughs> All right. And the last couple of questions for the kind of the, the young at heart creators that listen to this podcast. Um, uh, what advice would you give to any young creator that's wanting to get into the industry? Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, just got to do stuff, honestly. Got to do stuff and uh, got to find someone. This is an advice I give to myself. I mean, it doesn't change whether you're young or old. Got to find someone that uh, is able to support you, you know. Uh, usually, I think when you're, when you're young, it's easier because, I mean, it's easier in a way. Because uh, you can do stuff with less resources. And if your stuff is good, you can let it circulate pretty easily. Meaning, if you want to do, uh, specifically, let's talk about films. You want to do a film, and it's a three-minute film, two minutes, one minute, whatever. And it's not going to cost you so much. And if it's good, you can circulate it. You know, you put it on email, you put it around. And if it's good, it's going to be picked. And that's going to be a good uh, platform for you to be seen. And all these things are free. You know, you can... Uh, um, just post your stuff and submit your things. So it's not easy by any means, but, you know, find the story that you like and apply all the teachings from this beautiful podcast <laughs> and, uh, and then just make it cool. Uh, you know, that, that I cannot, you know, it's up to you to understand how, but once you have it, make sure that it circulates. But then on top of that, uh, make sure you have people that can help you and or support you with whatever you're trying to do. And that applies to young people, applies to me. I mean, I'm writing a movie now, like, you know, if I write the movie and then I, I sit on my desk, nothing is gonna happen out of this movie. You know, I need to find people that support me, that believe in my vision, that, and that can actually help me. So seek people that have more experiences than you and reach out and, and build a, a support system, you know? Seek people that are equal, equal as you, they're, those are going to be like your kind of network. Seek people that are better than you because those are going to be your mentor. And then the people that are worse than you are going to seek for you. So it's fine. Those you don't need to worry about. Um, so I think that's the main, the, main, uh, the main teaching. And then stuff come, kind of goes into place. Obviously, you know, I, I, I speak more to me now. When you're older and you need to do bigger stuff, it obviously takes more time uh, you know, you cannot just do something. It goes back to what we were saying before, you know, like you want to put out things and et cetera. It takes more time and, and you need more of a support and et cetera, et cetera. But I guess it never changes. Like the, the rules are kind of always the same. And what's your favorite piece of equipment? Or what's the camera you're using? I'm sure everyone will want to know. No, I mean, it really depends because cameras, you, you usually rent them and it depends according to project. Um, so... I wouldn't say I have a favorite one because you just random, uh, you know, me personally, but this is just very personal. I'm kind of like, for me, it's a pain in the ass when I have big cameras 
because I cannot move them around so freely. Uh, and I need to be very specific on what I want. And I'm kind of like a little bit loose. So personally, I like small cameras. Uh, but it's, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult for me to use them, especially if it's on a commercial job. Like I honestly cannot use them. Like client would not take me seriously. But most of the stuff I did, if, it, if it's up to me, like I'm, I'm golden with a Sony A7S II or something like that, which is small, it's great. But you know, if, if I were to talk now to a filmmaker, yes, I can kind of try and defend my cause, but there's no DP in the world that is gonna be like, yes, Ivan, let's go and shoot with a Sony A7S II. They're gonna be like, fuck you, man. Like I want an Alexa with great lenses, you know? which is oftentimes what I shoot on the most. But if you ask me in terms of the, the freedom and the beauty of, of this job and the reason why I do it from a document, documentary specifically perspective, but even other ones, I love having a camera that is like this, you know, and whether it's you operating it or a DP, I mean, it's literally, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm already covering 360 your whole face. Whereas, you know, with an Alexa, it's, it's a different deal. You have a guy, you have a, a guy that comes with the guy that fixes the <laughs> shit. No, but I mean, you know, so you go there, it's like two people moving this guy, like the, the camera there, like, you know, it takes. Have you, you have know, you shot? Do you shoot, do you shoot any like mini movies on your iPhone? No, iPhone actually, no. I've always tried, but um, somehow not, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, we are now at the end. Um, just to round it off, we always like to ask how people can find you, uh, you know, the, the uh, Bravo website or best way to, to find you on social channels, if you could just let the audience know the website. Yeah, of course. So uh, Instagram is uh, Ivan Olita, I-V-A-N-O-L-I-T-A. And then website, it's uh, ivanolita.com. And uh, Bravo is brv.nyc. Um, Amazing. Well, oh, thank you. My guide, theolita.guide. What, what's the guide again? Theolita, theolita.guide. Okay, I've got to definitely check that one out. But um, yeah, as I said, we could continue this podcast for another couple of hours, but I know you're, you've are you got a busy day. But um, thank you for your time. I mean, it's so transparent and forthcoming with some incredible insight and, and sharing all kind of your career journey to date. So thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. It was such a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast can intrigue, inspire, and provide some key tips and tricks for a lot of people. I would really appreciate your help to grow the community. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, then please send it their way. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, it would mean so much and it really supports the show. Thank you and see you next week.